Well, please turn in your Bible to Matthew chapter 10, verse 34. Matthew 10, 34. The Christmas season is upon us. It's a time of year when Christians tend to celebrate baby Jesus and draw attention to His birth. The baby born in a manger is a sure sign of God's love for all people. And really, the baby Jesus is a portion of the Christian message that is soft and cuddly and non-threatening. But the fact is, Jesus grew up to be a man. And as a man, uh, He said things that make both non-Christians and even Christians a little uncomfortable, uh, things that we need to reckon with. And so, for our Christmas series this year, we're looking at statements Jesus made about why He came into the world. And they are reminders to us about the good things that the birth of Jesus is the foundation for, but they're not all soft and cuddly and non-threatening. Jesus didn't come into the world, for instance, to abolish the Old Testament Scriptures but to fulfill them. He didn't come into the world to call those who are delusional about how righteous they are, but to call people who know they're sinners to repentance. Um, Grown-up Jesus isn't safe. He doesn't always affirm us. Sometimes He admonishes us. Sometimes He warns us. And so, this Christmas, we're looking at why Jesus Himself said that He came into the world and what that means for us. And the saying we come to today Uh, why he says he came into the world, the the statement we're going to look at today is perhaps the strangest of the ones we're going to look at this December. Uh, When you read it at first glance, it seems to fly in the face of the things we celebrate during the Christmas season. It's an example of one of those places where Jesus says something that we probably don't want to hear, but something we need to hear if we're going to have peace with God. Let's read the text together so you can see exactly what I'm talking about. Uh, I'm going to read Matthew chapter 10, verses 34 through 42. Uh, This is in the middle of a section where Jesus is instructing His disciples about what it costs to follow Him. And He says, verse 34, "'Do not think I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword.'" For I came to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be the members of his household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and he who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me, and he who does not take up his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life will lose it, and he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. He who receives you receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. He who receives a prophet in the name of a prophet shall receive a prophet's reward. And he who receives a righteous man in the name of a righteous man shall receive a righteous man's reward. And whoever in the name of a disciple gives to one of these little ones even a cup of cold water to drink, truly I say to you, he shall not lose his reward." Well, as I was saying before, these words of our Lord come from a section in Matthew's gospel where He's teaching His disciples about the cost of following Him. And He announces that He didn't come to bring peace on earth, but a sword. Now, I don't know about you, but that's attention-getting, and it's also a little troubling, especially when we read it in December during Christmas season, because it seems to fly in the face of what we believe the Christmas season is about. Peace is part of the message 
of the Christmas story, after all. We sing about it. We cross-stitch peace on earth on pillows, right? It's it's one of the candles in the Advent calendar, the peace candle. Uh, When Jesus was born, angels sang peace on earth. At the Last Supper, Jesus said to His disciples, my peace I give to you. So, how can Jesus in this context say, I didn't come to bring peace, but a sword? Is it a contradiction? And if it's not a contradiction, if we can reconcile it, how do we reconcile it? How do we think about this? Well, let me begin by explaining what Jesus didn't mean, and I think this is important in our current moment in history to say what Jesus didn't mean, and then to explain what that figure of speech of bringing a sword meant in Jewish culture and how it applies to us. Let's start with what it doesn't mean. And I want to illustrate this by talking about the difference between, one of the differences between Christianity and Islam. One of the differences between Christianity and Islam is that Christianity, uh, in Christianity, we are a religion of the heart. We're a heart religion. But in Islam, using coercion and even violence in order to bring people into outward conformity uh, to the law of Allah, that is seen as a loving thing because what it does is it helps those who are impious avoid judgment. And the logic behind it is this, that Allah will only judge people according to their external obedience or disobedience to His law. That's the theology. But that has never been the position of Christianity in the way that we relate with God. People have to choose to follow Him from the heart. And so, when we bring the gospel message, we're trying to uh, influence people, we're trying to persuade people to willingly, voluntarily choose for themselves to follow Jesus from the heart. Jesus and those who follow Him are not bringing a sword in the sense of using militaristic violence or, or the threat of violence to, to bring people into some kind of outward conformity to the Ten Commandments. That's not what we're trying to do in Christianity. Uh, there, there's a reason that when you do comparative religions, there is no Christian equivalent of what Islam has with Sharia law. And so, if that's not what Jesus means, Jesus doesn't mean bringing violence or the threat of violence to get people to conform to God's law, then, then what's the idea of bringing a sword? Well, in first century Israel, the idea of bringing a sword was used figuratively because the sword was seen as an instrument that divides, right? You can cut stuff with it. It causes division. And you see that division explained. If you're kind of wondering, I wonder what Jesus means by a sword, you just keep reading and He explains it in verse 35. He talks about setting people against each other. He uses the Greek word dikadzo, which literally means to divide in two and became used figuratively in speech for setting opposite, opposite things against each other or inciting people against each other. Back in verse 34, the Greek word that we translate as bring means to usher in a state or a condition of something. In this case, a condition of people on earth being divided against each other based on whether they are loyal to or reject Jesus. Because of what Jesus calls His followers to, there's going to be some inevitable and very natural divisions between them and those who choose not to follow Jesus. And so, the best way to understand this, uh, these words of our Lord, and how they reconcile with the peace that He brings, is to view the peace He's going to bring both in the short run and the long run. 
Yes, Jesus is the Prince of Peace. Christ is working on a plan that will eventually usher in universal peace on earth. But the short-term results of His first coming creates division between people. Uh, Maybe we could say it this way, peace on earth was never prophesied for the church age. The age of the church is an age of conflict. It's an age of spiritual warfare. However, peace on earth has been prophesied for the new heaven and new earth and new Jerusalem in the age to come. One study Bible I consulted sums it up better than I am uh, by saying it this way. This was the note on verse 34, quote, though the ultimate end of the gospel is peace with God, the immediate result of the gospel is frequently conflict. Conversion to Christ can result in strained family relationships, persecution, and even martyrdom. Following Christ presupposes a willingness to endure such hardships. Though He is called Prince of Peace, Christ will have no one deluded into thinking He calls believers to a life devoid of conflict. What Jesus is doing here in Matthew chapter 10 is communicating to His disciples, don't be under the illusion that my coming is going to bring in immediate peace on earth. It's going to, who I am and what I teach, it's going to create some fracturing of relationships. Now, I will confess to you that this is a hard passage for me because by nature, I'm a conflict-avoiding, people-pleasing, approval junkie, all right? But what Jesus teaches here is very important for those of us who are conflict-avoiding, peace-at-all-costs, approval addicts to hear. We need to hear this because the way that we live isn't healthy. Sometimes a situation is so messed up that the only path to true and real genuine peace is through conflict. You got to go through some conflict to get there so that you can bring about a just peace. A good illustration might be what Martin Luther King Jr. did during the Civil Rights Movement. Uh, To use a very specific example, when Martin Luther King Jr. marched on Selma to protest the voter suppression that was happening there, he did what Jesus talks about here. No, Martin Luther did not bring a, a literal sword in the sense of bringing violence to Selma. It was a peaceful protest. But on the other hand, when he came to Selma, he also wasn't there to just maintain the status quo and affirm the way the community did business and not ruffle any feathers and, and, and not make anybody upset. That wasn't why he was there. He brought a sword in the sense of protesting what was wrong and entering into conflict so that he could bring about in the long run a just peace. And the same is true here in our passage today. Jesus is saying that if you're going to follow Him, you're not going to be able to avoid all conflict with the world. In fact, if you want to follow Jesus and have peace with the world, the only path to get there is by surrendering to the world, and that is not an option that Jesus condones. Now, the bare fact that Messiah would come into the world and that His coming would produce some conflict, I don't think was surprising to the disciples, right? Uh, Some of the very messianic prophecies back in the Old Testament 
uh, talk about how even though Messiah will bring peace on earth in the long run, in His immediate coming, there's going to be some conflict. And even the rabbis in the first century taught this, right? Think about the rabbinic and even the, the, the popular first century uh, Jewish conception of Messiah. What was Messiah supposed to do? He was supposed to kick out the Romans. Well, let's go with that for a moment. Messiah comes, He kicks out the Romans. What's going to happen next? Well, there's going to be a populist backlash against all the Jews who collaborated with Rome, right? Like, what, how do you think the population's going to treat the tax collectors, the leaders who sided with Rome so they could keep their place in society, the Herodians who not only sided with Rome, but they sided with the Herodian dynasty, uh, all those uh, Jewish girls who were a little too friendly with Roman soldiers, right? This isn't going to go well. There's going to be division. There's going to be a kickback. There's going to be pushback. And so, the bare fact that Messiah is coming would bring some division between people and some conflict on earth. That was not something that was surprising. But what I think would have been surprising and shocking and troubling for the disciples to hear is the exact kind of division that Jesus talks about. Look again at verses 35 and 36. For I came to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be the members of his own household. That hurts. Uh, I admit I don't like that. It's fine if the divisions Messiah brings are outside my home, somewhere out there in the community in general. And if I have to deal with it, you know, if His coming creates some heated academic debate in the academy, you know, and some talk shows where they get people on each side and, and the host, like, riles them up. Okay, fine. If, if I go to work and every now and then at work it complicates what I do at my job, all right, fine. But not at home. Most of us are not bothered by the idea that God's intervention in the world will create some division, uh, potentially, and it might fracture some friendships, but when Jesus quotes the prophet Micah, he's quoting Micah here, to illustrate the division that will happen in the home, it's the worst possible outcome because it attacks our most meaningful relationships. If you're going to be a true follower of Jesus, you have to be willing for your faith to create some division between you and the people you love most. And that goes against the grain of human nature because we all want peace at home. Home is the place where we seek emotional intimacy with other people. Home is the place we look to for belonging in a world that is otherwise indifferent to our existence. No one wants to be at odds with their own family. And so, I think if we're honest, we need to say, we need to confess that what Jesus says bothers us deeply. But I don't think it bothers us as deeply as it would have bothered uh, the disciples of Jesus in the first century, and here's the reason why. Jewish culture back then, at that location, at that time, was a much more traditional culture uh, than we have here. The expressive individualism, which infects our society and places limits on how much any individual is willing to sacrifice for the good of their family, that had not yet infected them. Families lived a lot closer together. People didn't move around for career like we tend to in contemporary America. And not only that, 
there was a lot of money and property involved, right? There was the family farm that had multiple generations on it, and aunts and uncles and cousins and brothers, and there were these dense networks of uh, uh, nephews and nieces, and, uh, or if it wasn't a family farm, in the city, there was a family business that you worked And then when your parents died, you inherited the family business. And so they were connected by businesses and farms and money. And they, they, uh, most of life revolved around the immediate and extended family to a greater extent than what most of us experience in contemporary America. Now, here at Grace Fellowship Church, we believe in Jesus. We We believe He came into the world to teach truth. But what he says here is a huge threat to disrupting uh, our cherished relationships, which means that what Jesus is saying must be really important, right? It must be really… God is the one who designed the family, and He does intend to bless us through His design for family. And so, if God's Son says that He came to disrupt family, uh, it must be pretty important, right? It must be pretty important uh, if it's going to mean causing divisions between family. And according to Jesus, there are some conflicts that are that important, like whether or not people choose to give their loyalty and allegiance to Him. Now, to be clear, because I want to make sure we're balanced, we don't go the wrong way with this, to be clear, um, those of us who follow Jesus we can still struggle at times with dividing over and arguing over the wrong things, things that we shouldn't divide over, things that we shouldn't allow to cause a division. Um, When Brooke and I were first married, uh, we had a moment, I think it was in the first year or two of our marriage, where we we were going to repaint our coffee table, and there were two shades to choose from. There was a, a lighter shade and a darker shade. I chose the lighter shade. She chose the darker shade. And we, you know, commenced to disagree with one another. And I remember thinking at the time, this is so dumb. Like, why are we arguing about this? I just, I don't understand why she can't see that the lighter shade's better. <laughs> now, now, to, to let you know how the story ends, so I don't just leave the story with no conclusion, I had already decided as a young man that I, I, I'm not good at decorating. I don't have an eye for that. I, I don't, and I, I decided ahead of time, whatever poor woman marries me and is stuck with me, as much as possible, I'm going to give her a free hand in decorating. I don't want lacy pillows everywhere. We're not going to paint the walls pink, but I'm going to give her a free hand because I know that's important to women. They, they want to make the house their home, and decorating is more important to them than it is to, to me and to most guys, and so I'll try. And so what happened was, after a while, I talked myself down, we painted it the darker color, and she was totally right. It looked way better. And part of that is because I can't, you know those uh, paint samples you paint on the wall? Or even swatches, when you paint the actual paint on the wall, and I look at it, and I'm just like, yeah, it doesn't, I don't know. I, I don't know what it's going to look at when you paint the whole thing. So I'm worthless when it comes to paint samples and swatches. It's, it doesn't help me make a decision at all, and she was right. Now, now, the reason I share that story, I just want to share the story. Sometimes we do divide. Sometimes we do argue over the wrong things. But what those of us who are conflict avoiders need to hear is sometimes we are avoiding conflict 
over important things, over the right things, and we're missing out on the just peace that could be had if we would enter into conflict the right way. Um, What Jesus says here does bother us, uh, but it's words we need to hear. And so, as we think about uh, times where we're fighting over something important, maybe I could use this illustration uh, for something that's important. Imagine for a moment that you're close friends with a young couple. They just got married this year. They're both Christians. They're trying to follow Jesus. And uh, this is going to be their first Christmas together as a married couple. And they're going to spend it with his side of the family. Now, you know that she is a a wonderful Christian girl. She's very sweet. And and you know that she's good for him. uh, And you respect her. But you also know that his family doesn't like her. Uh, They don't think she's good enough for him for worldly, not for spiritual reasons, just for worldly reasons. They don't think that she's good enough for them. Uh, They're they're kind of a close-knit family, and his mom resents the way that she diverts his attention away from the family. And so, the husband shares with you, you know, I I think it would be best for me uh, to to decide ahead of time how I'm going to respond with my family, and I'm going to share it with my wife, and I'm thinking about saying something like this. Honey, I know it's going to be difficult because my family, at times, they can be mockers, right? Um, and my mom can be passive-aggressive. about. She can make passive-aggressive comments, and I can't control any of that. So, here's what I plan to do. If my sister makes a joke about you that's funny, I promise I'll do my level best not to laugh, and uh, um, I also promise that if my mom says something insulting, I'll stay silent. I won't pile on. I won't add insults to whatever she's saying because uh, I want you to know that I'm with you, right? Now, if you're this man's friend, what would you say to him? We need to say it gently, by the way. (laughs) For his sake, he's a young man. We need to be gentle with him because that's how we treat people. But I hope that you would correct him, right? Left uncorrected, that isn't going to go over well with his bride. Um, The Bible teaches that a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they'll be one flesh. There's a loyalty issue that's at stake. The wife wants to see that her husband loves her and is proud to be with her. And so, not joining in on the mockery and the insults, that's a good beginning, but we also, you know, she's going to want more, and she has every right to want more because of the nature of that relationship. Well, Jesus is calling us to do more than just not join in the mockery or the slander that goes on about God in the world. He's calling us to actually stand up for Him and to be proud to associate with Him. Do people, and particularly your family and your extended family, do they know that you're proud to stand with Jesus? Uh, Do they know that you're not ashamed of Him? I, I use that word ashamed very purposely because that's an issue that we need to address as Christians, right? Many Christians in the world today, and increasingly this is becoming an issue for American Christians, we need to face this, and here's the reason why. The world actively tries to shame people for following Jesus. Islam is particularly good at it. You can ask any Christian from a Muslim country, and they'll tell you that it's taught from a young age to the children that, you know, if if you grow up, and you go to prison because you got caught being a thief or breaking the law, uh, you have to pay the penalty. 
Uh, but it's understandable, right? We're all human beings. We all make mistakes. Uh, if you go to prison for being a thief, you have to pay the price, but it is understandable. But if you were to become a Christian, that would be shameful. You're shaming your family. You're shaming our community. You're bringing shame on yourself by following Jesus. And the same is becoming, that kind of thinking, that kind of arguing, is becoming increasingly true in our culture amongst aggressive secularism. That it's a shameful thing for you to follow Jesus, because if you follow Jesus, you are by definition a bigot. A generation ago, Christians were the village idiots because we wouldn't go along in believing in evolution, but now it's seen as a shameful thing that you would do harm to others by not jumping on the progressive agenda to free people from every possible limitation. But let me ask you this, brothers and sisters, should we be ashamed of Jesus? Did Jesus ever do or teach anything that was shameful? No, he, he didn't do anything shameful. He didn't teach anything shameful. We shouldn't be ashamed of him. We shouldn't be ashamed of his teaching. We shouldn't be ashamed to follow him. When I worked at the Master's University, uh, I taught a bachelor's level counseling class, and the nature of the homework took me deep into the fine china of students' lives. And I remember working with this one young man who was trying to reconcile his relationship with his mom, and the breach in the relationship came when he was in high school when he became a Christian. And his mom thought Christians were just a bunch of crazy people, and it bothered her that her son would become a Christian. And I remember at one point him sharing with me in frustration, um, I'm not abusing alcohol or drugs. I'm not a member of a gang or doing any crime. I'm a better student, and I'm certainly a much more respectful son than I was before. I'm happier than I've ever been, but she won't even talk to me. And what that young man was experiencing, he was experiencing because Christ divides family members. Jesus goes on to explain it this way, verse 37. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Jesus is calling all who follow Him to a greater love for Him and a greater loyalty to Him than we have even for our own family. And when you look at who Jesus is, He has every right to ask for it, just like the young bride in the illustration I shared, right? Jesus is the creator of all things. He created us. He made us. Uh, he is the one who's redeemed us from our sins, and we owe Him our allegiance. It's not wrong for Him to ask for our loyalty and love. But he doesn't stop there in this particular passage. Look at verse 38 and 39. Uh, and he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life will lose it, and he who has lost his life for my benefit will find it. Uh, verse 38 is the very first time in Matthew's gospel where Jesus uses the word cross. So, the disciples still don't understand that Jesus is going to go to the cross to be a sacrifice for sin. Uh, they don't understand that. And so, let's just stop here and remember that in first century Jewish culture, they understood what a cross was, and they had no figure of speech like we do about that other person or that other thing being my cross to bear. Uh, the cross was too near, too graphic, too horrific for them to soften it by talking about some trial or difficulty I'm facing being my cross in life. So, what did it mean to them? 
Well, the Greek phrase uh, uh, literally means, when Jesus says, take his cross, uh, another way you could translate it would be receive. He who does not receive his cross. That comes from the Roman custom of making the condemned criminal carry their own cross to the place of their own execution. I think the closest parallel we have in English for, for a saying that would be like this would be Jesus saying, he who is unwilling to dig his own grave and follow after me is unworthy of me. Um, so they understood Jesus to be saying that if you're going to follow him, you have to be so loyal, so dedicated that you're willing to die if necessary. Jesus is asking for total commitment. And for those who live in context where they're probably not going to die, they're not going to be martyred for following Jesus, uh, for those who live in that kind of context, Jesus says, verse 39, he who has found his life will lose it, and he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. Finding life in verse 39 has to do with being at home in the world, uh, finding all your comfort and pleasure and identity and satisfaction and significance in this life, in this world. Uh, in fact, the word he uses for life here, I like it's suke, and it kind of makes an excellent wordplay in English if you give a, a sort of a dynamic equivalent translation that expands the thought. Uh, I see Jesus to be saying here, he who enjoys his best life in this world will lose his soul, but he who voluntarily loses the good life he could have had in this world for my benefit will find his soul. I think one of the reasons what Jesus says in this paragraph is hard for us to hear isn't just because we have a natural love of family and a natural love of our own biological life and a natural love of uh, the life that we're trying to build. All of us are trying to get on in the world. We're trying to be a success in the world. We're trying to pursue those things that we believe will make us happy. And those things, yes, they tempt us. Yes, they seduce us. But I think the other reason that what Jesus says can be so hard is that we don't perceive the danger that our souls are already in. Uh, a couple of summers ago, I watched uh, a movie with my son Grant. My son Grant wanted, really wanted to watch this particular movie. I won't tell you what movie it is, but dinosaurs were involved. Uh, what movie it was, but di dinosaurs were involved. And, what, and there was this one scene where there's two brothers, and they're running away from a meat-eating dinosaur, and they come to an edge of a cliff with a waterfall. And when you look at this waterfall, the way the waterfall is portrayed cinematically, when you look at it, uh, it the, the pool looks kind of maybe shallow, and it's a long, it's a big height. And so, you look at this waterfall, and jumping off of it is the kind of thing that could either kill them or severely injure them. And yet, you're cheering for the boys to jump because if they don't jump, the dinosaur's going to kill them. And that's the same situation we're in. Yes, it's dangerous to follow Jesus. Yes, it will cost you. But the alternative is spiritual death, right? Family and the life we choose for ourselves, that's good stuff. But if we choose them over Jesus, we miss out on the forgiveness of sins He offers, reconciliation with God, new spiritual life, and resurrection in the age to come. Uh, it is a temptation for every one of us uh, to read these words and find them hard, but uh, we need to hear these if we're going to have true peace with God. Now, the temptation, I think, when we look at Jesus 
just as a person, this is just an observation, is uh, to read the gospel accounts and be very impressed by who Jesus is as a teacher. And there are many people, uh, even non-Christians, who aren't necessarily hostile to Jesus as He's portrayed in the gospel accounts. It's very easy when you read the gospel accounts to be impressed with Him. And I think that creates a situation where it's very natural for the human heart to respond to Jesus uh, by saying with our actions, we we might not say this with our words, but with our actions saying something like this, Jesus, I love you, and I want to follow you, and I'm with you till the eighth inning. But if you ask me to believe in in creation instead of evolution, or you ask me to take a hit in my career, this career that I love, or you ask me to lose the approval of my parents, or you ask me to lose relationship with my adult children, then I hope it won't hurt our friendship, but I have to check out on you. And Jesus is warning everybody ahead of time, if you're not willing to give up everything to follow Him, you're not worthy of Him. Now, at the end of verse 39, I will admit up to this point, uh, the passage could seem very negative. I mean, even just the horrific word picture of taking up your own cross, you know, taking up crucifixion to follow Jesus, that's a pretty horrific word picture. Uh, Giving up our best life now, my dream for a happy, harmonious family and giving that up, that's a pretty negative paragraph, right? That's going to be a hard sell for people. Um, And granted, we know theologically that if Jesus hadn't come into the world, the world would have gone united into hell, and that's not a great, you know, that's not a great ending. And, and, but still, in the back of our minds, we crave harmony, right? Uh, In the Trinity, uh, John 17 is very clear about this. Uh, Jesus is praying to the Father at the Last Supper, and He talks about the love and communication there was between the Trinity before the world began. Uh, God is a social being. We're made in His image as social creatures. And so, any rejection and loss of relationship with others tends to hurt because He made us social beings. And so, sometimes we just prefer unity over division, even if that unity is around something that's subpar. It's just nice to have some peace and some harmony and these words are hard to hear, but He doesn't just leave us with this warning and this call to be loyal to Him. He also tells us about the reward of following Him. Look at verses 40 through 42 again. He who receives you receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. He who receives a prophet in the name of a prophet shall receive a prophet's reward, and he who receives a righteous man in the name of a righteous man shall receive a righteous man's reward. And whoever in the name of a disciple gives to one of these little ones even a cup of cold water to drink, truly I say to you, he shall not lose his reward. Uh, There is a promise here that applies to you and I if we follow Jesus in two ways. When you receive a true messenger of the gospel, you're not really receiving them, you're receiving Jesus. And when you bow the knee to Jesus, you're not just receiving Him, you're receiving God the Father who sent Him. And the reverse is also true. If if what Jesus says is true in the gospel accounts, then the majority of people that you try to influence to follow Christ uh, will reject uh, your influence, your counsel, but not all of them. Some will turn to Christ, 
And some of them will treat you like a prophet, even though you're not one. Some of you will treat you like a righteous man or woman with high respect. Others will just take you at face value as a genuine follower of Christ. And since you and I have such limited capacity to reward them, God promises to be their rewarder, and He promises here to be our rewarder. And notice the exactness of the accounting God does. Even the seemingly insignificant act of giving a cup of cold water to someone in Christ's name will be rewarded. When it comes to your service for King Jesus, He is meticulous about the accounting that leads to those, uh, the accounting that leads to rewarding those who followed Him. And so, when we take a step back and look at this paragraph, we need to say, yes, the price is high for following Jesus, but the reward is worth it. Heavenly reward, acceptance with God, uh, the affirmation and approval of our Lord Jesus Christ, uh, finding our souls instead of losing them, that's all worth it. Now, the Apostle John, I give this just by way of contrast, uh, in conclusion, to challenge you. The Apostle John tells us that during the Passion Week of Jesus, that last week He was in Jerusalem, that there was a shocking, a surprising amount of Jews and the Jewish leaders who recognized that Jesus was, in fact, the Messiah. In fact, John uses the word believe. There was a shocking number even of the rulers of the Jews who believed that Jesus was Messiah. But because of the Pharisees, they wouldn't confess Jesus publicly for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue. And then John adds this editorial note under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, for they loved the approval of men rather than the approval of God. Do you love the approval of family more than the approval of God? Are you avoiding a potential division with a family member over Jesus or the righteousness that He teaches? Is there an area where you've chosen family over Christ? Family is great, but Jesus is greater. And if you want to follow the Lord Jesus Christ, you have to be willing to enter into some conflict. Let's pray.